Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Jesus instructing his disciples. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you again for the truth of your word, and we pray that it would bear great fruit in our hearts as we think about how to pray and what to pray and when to pray. I pray that you would amaze us with a picture of your grace this morning. It's for your name we pray. Amen. Some of you just heard that passage, and you're thinking, prayer? Seriously? After the week that we've had? The week began with horrendous news in our own denomination about abuse going unchecked and unstopped? Horrible should cause us all to grieve. But then that was driven out of our minds by the horrors that took place in Texas when an armed gunman ran into an elementary school and took lives. Prayer, seriously, in a week like this, this is the best thing that we could think of to talk about? Yes, because I can't think of anything else to talk about. I can't think about anything else to do. And often when we talk about prayer, we feel guilty immediately because we don't do it enough. I heard, I I read one guy this week and then I heard like a million other people quote the same guy who, who said, if you want to embarrass the average Christian, ask him about his prayer life. Because we all have this sense that prayer is important, but we don't do it enough. And often I think we don't do it enough because we don't know how. And when our prayers are repetitive, they get boring. Or when our prayers are too mundane, they get boring. Maybe your prayer life is boring because you're not praying for the right things. You're not praying the way that God has called you to pray, invited you to pray. But but more importantly, when we talk about prayer, we ought not to feel hopeless in light of all the suffering and evil around us. And we also ought not to feel guilty because of all the evil and prayerlessness inside of us. Because prayer is one of the clearest pictures of God's grace that we have in this life. When you think about prayer, you should not feel 
overwhelming guilt, but you should feel the warm invitation of God's grace drawing you in, drawing you closer. Your righteousness is not the foundation of your prayer life. So you don't have to run from God because you haven't prayed enough. God's grace is the foundation of our prayers, the reason he hears our prayers. And because our righteousness is not the foundation of our prayer life, our comfort should not be the goal of our prayer life. The main point I want to drive home to you today is that the true disciple prays that God would be glorified. The true disciple prays that God would be glorified. And we find this passage, this teaching on prayer in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which we've been studying together over the last few weeks. The Sermon on the Mount describes the true people of the true King. Jesus Christ alone is Lord, and his disciples are the people in his kingdom, his dominion. In other words, if you want to know what a follower of Jesus' life is really supposed to look like, read the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' explanation of discipleship. And here, we come to the center of the Sermon on the Mount, the nucleus of the Sermon on the Mount, the climax of the Sermon on the Mount. Literarily, structurally, just in terms of space on the page, in all of those ways, the Lord's Prayer culminates and climaxes here at its center, the Lord's Prayer and this famous teaching on prayer. So what does it all mean and how should it change our prayer life? How should it change the way that we pray and what we pray for? Three instructions that I want to share with you today from the Lord on our prayer life from this teaching. Number one, we pray because God's grace is sure. Number two, we pray for God's greatness to be seen. And number three, we pray for God's goodness to be shown. So first, number one, we pray because God's grace is sure. God invites us into prayer not because we are good, but because he is good. Not because he is delighted by our company or impressed by our words, but because he is infinitely kind. Jesus says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, those are both public places, by the way, that they may be seen by others. So why do these hypocrites, these people who say one thing and live a different way, why do they love to pray? Because they love to be seen. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But, Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room. It's not a private place. Hope not. And shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There's a, a lot that we could unpack here. We got into a lot of it last week in Jesus' instructions on giving. So a quick summary here for you. And if you want to learn more, you can go listen to the sermon from last week. Jesus is calling us here to not settle. 
to not settle for the cheap reward that this world has to offer you, but to not settle for anything less than knowing God himself. And how insidious is it that often in prayer, when we ought to be focused on God alone, we're so busy thinking about what other people think about us. How ridiculous is that? I mean, seriously, that's like knowing the greatest person in the world and worrying about what his butler thinks about you. That's crazy. It's crazy. Don't settle for a cheap reward when God has promised you something greater. Knowing him. That's what God's inviting you to in prayer. And God makes himself available to you by grace. God gives you these rewards not because he owes you something, not because he's in debt to you, but because of his grace. We pray because God's grace is sure. Jesus continues, verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they know that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So notice here the sin of wordy prayers, prayers that seem righteous on the outside, but on the inside, the motives are all wrong. We're focused on our praying or on the people hearing our praying instead of the God we pray to. And again, this is like going to the Grand Canyon, and instead of looking out at all of the beauty, looking down at your shoes and like, oh man, my, my socks don't match. That's it's a little unfortunate. And then you get back in the car and you're like, wait, were we like supposed to look at something out there? Like, of course you're at the Grand Canyon. You should be enjoying that. You should be falling to your knees because it's amazing. Your jaw should have dropped open, but you were staring at your shoes. That's what it's like to, to pray, focusing on the people around you. It's the sin of wordy prayers. But also notice the silliness of wordy prayers. He says, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For Why? For they think that they will be heard for their many words. So why are these people in Jesus' day praying these long, elaborate prayers, shouting maybe, using all these righteous-sounding phrases? They're praying like this because they think the more words they pile up, the more likely they are that God will hear them. And Jesus says, that's crazy. You don't do it. Verse 8, do not be like them. Why? For your father knows what you need before you ask him. It's silly to just pile up all of these elaborate words. You don't need to pile up all these words because God knows you and God hears you and God loves you. Not because your prayers have impressed him, but because he's just kind like that. He's just good like that. Like wordy prayer, bringing wordy prayers to a father who loves us is like a kid coming in from outside at noon and he's, he looks at his mom and he says, Mom, my dearest mom who I love with all of my heart, I do have one humble request for you, mother, today. In light of the fact that I've been playing outside and it is, I'm now extremely famished and all the other reasons that I could give you for my nutrition and diet, I would like to humbly request lunch from you, my mother. Whatever you could spare, be it a crumb of bread, mother, please. Give me lunch, please. Like, that's crazy. You don't need to do that. His mom was probably already expecting to give him lunch. That's what wordy, wordy prayers are like. You don't need to pray wordy prayers. We just read in 1 Peter chapter 5 
about a God who invites you to cast all of your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. That's, that's really good. It's really good. God doesn't hear our prayers because he's impressed by them. He hears our prayers because of his grace. I said this to you last week. You cannot impress God. And that's really scary. But you don't have to impress God. And that's the best news in the whole world. There's never been better news than that. You don't have to impress God because his grace has been poured out on you. Because Christ purchased it at the cross. Your answered prayers, your heard prayers, the ear of God was purchased for you at the cross of Christ and at the resurrection of Christ. Why do we ever think that our words would merit God's favor when Christ died to attain that? You think that we think that our words or our acts of righteousness or appearing righteous before others are more valuable to God than the blood of Christ. That's absolutely insane, friends. We don't need to impress God because he's already been fully satisfied in his son. This idea that we pray because God's grace is sure, shapes the beginning and the end of our prayer life. We pray to our Father. We're going to get into that in just a minute in verse 9. We pray to our Father. Why? Because we have been adopted as sons by grace. Adopted as sons because we have an inheritance. That's a cultural expression doesn't mean that women aren't included or are devalued. It's, it just shows the radical nature of it, that you are not just brought into the household. You're brought in as a son. You have an inheritance. You have a treasure. You've been adopted by grace, by a loving father who will never leave you. And this idea also shapes the end of our prayer life. Often we pray in Jesus' name. Why do we pray in Jesus' name? Amen. Because we have no merit to come before God in our own name. I have no right to go to God and say, God, do this for me because I am so righteous. We have, we have no right to go to God and say, do you know who I am? We have no right to do that. That's often how we pray. We pray in my name. We don't need to do that because we have a better name to pray in. We pray in Jesus' name. We pray because God's grace is sure. We pray because we are one with Christ who died in our place, who took the penalty for our sins, who really was dead in the tomb for three days, who rose victoriously, mightily to guarantee God's grace for you forever. So friends, don't pile up words thinking that God will hear you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he will exalt you. Friends, we pray because God's grace is sure. So humble yourself, friends. Humble yourself. I, I read this a couple weeks ago and it absolutely blew me away. Hosea chapter 2 says... So in, Hosea, in the book of Hosea, God addresses his rebellious people, Israel, and he frequently compares them to an adulterous wife. And he says, I've been faithful and she's been unfaithful. I've been righteous, she's been promiscuous. I've been committed, she's gotten a side job as a prostitute. 
All that's in the Bible, friends. It's, it's crazy. But here, in Hosea chapter 2, this is amazing. God says, my people went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. That's not what we expect to happen, friends. What we expect to happen is, my people have abandoned me, therefore I will destroy them because they've had enough chances. That's not what God says. He says, my people have abandoned me, therefore I will draw them. And what does he say in Hosea 2? I will allure her, I will bring her into the wilderness, and I will do what? I will speak tenderly to her. God invites a rebellious people to communication, to prayer. In light of your sin, God is not running from your sin. He's drawing you out of your sin. We expect, my people have abandoned me, therefore I will destroy them. But what we have is, my people have abandoned me, therefore I will draw them. I will draw them. I will communicate with them. So friends, trust in the love of God. A God who knows everything that you've ever done. A God who knows every reason not to listen to your prayers. Think about how easy it is to lose trust. Trust is gained over a lifetime and it's lost in an instant. It's lost in an instant. You, you probably have somebody in your mind like, oh yeah, I'll never trust that person again after they did that or after they said that, after they didn't follow through on that. And God knows every reason not to trust you. And what does he say? He says, come and talk to me. Let's, let's have fellowship together. He knows every reason not to listen and he hears. That's grace. That is grace. We pray because God's grace is sure. And so friends, <laughs> let's go back to that quote. You want to embarrass the average Christian, ask him or her about their prayer life. Often prayerlessness becomes this vicious cycle where we say like, okay, well, man, like I like really like haven't prayed all week. I can't pray now. Like, I, of course I can't. Like I can't come to God. That's crazy. You know what that is? That's, that's the equivalent of piling up words, thinking like that God will hear you because you piled up words to say, I can't pray because I've sinned this week, or I can't pray because I haven't prayed enough this week. And that's how prayerlessness becomes a vicious cycle. We think, I haven't prayed enough, so I'm not going to pray today. That's just going to lead to more not praying. And the opposite is what God is calling you to. God is calling you to say, I haven't prayed. I need the Lord now more than ever before. God does not love you more. God does not hear your prayers more clearly or more quickly on the days or the weeks that you're crushing it spiritually. Because God does not hear you on the merit of your own words or on your own actions. God hears you on the merit of his son who died for your sins and rose again. We pray because God's grace is sure. God is drawing you. So we have this access to the king. 
What do we pray for? We pray because God's grace is sure. Number two, we pray for God's greatness to be seen. The top priority in our prayer life should be the spread of God's glory, not our own comfort. So Jesus says, verse 9, pray then like this. He's not giving an exact formula for prayer as if like if you don't pray with these exact words and like good luck, God's not going to hear your prayers. No, he's not saying that. He's outlining the priorities of Christian prayer. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. So like we already said, we're adopted as children. God has brought his enemies in. And earthly fathers may abandon you, but our God never will. So if you're coming here today and you, you, you haven't experienced the love of a father, God does not want you to redefine him in light of your past experiences with fathers. God is inviting you to redefine father according to him. God wants to redefine what a father is and can be. He loves you and he's brought you in and he will never cast you out. We're adopted as children, but also we're adopted as a family. Jesus does not begin the prayer by saying, my father. He begins the prayer by saying, our father. And often in prayer, we spend so much time focusing on our private, warm, fuzzy feelings. Like, man, I had a really good time in prayer today. When in reality, prayer is one of the most communal things that we can do because we're a family. We don't pray to my father, we pray to our father. So if you pray the Lord's Prayer, that first word should stop you in your tracks and you should think about people in this room, people that you can pray for. Because you've not just been adopted to have one-on-one time with Jesus, you've been adopted into a family. He's our Father. And we want others to know Him because He's that good. Hallowed be your name. So so the the rest of the prayer is is a series of three requests and three requests. The number three comes up again and again in the Sermon on the Mount. It's really interesting if you trace that through literarily. Lots of sets of three. So three requests about God's greatness and three requests about God's goodness. The first of those requests is, hallowed be your name. Now, hallow, that's not a word we use very often. What does that mean? Like you like carve it out so there's nothing inside of it? No, that's hollow. We're not praying that God would be hollowed because he can never change. Some of you are like, oh man, I've been doing that wrong the whole time. No, God does not want to be hollowed out. It's hallowed. To hallow something means to make it holy. And we're praying here not that God would become holy, but that God's holiness would be seen and recognized and magnified. Not that it would increase, but that it would be enlarged and enlivened before the people on this earth. It's kind of like, I don't know if people even do this anymore, but people used to post Woman Crush Wednesdays on social media or Man Crush Mondays. I don't know. I don't really have no idea if that even happens anymore. Um, but, but when you post something like that, you're not posting like, man, I really hope this finally like fixes my significant other. You're posting that because you already think that your significant other is beautiful and worth posting about. And that's kind of like what we pray when we pray, hallowed be your name. We're not praying that God would become holy. We're praying that his holiness would be seen. We want it shown off. We want it on full display. Hallowed be your name. 
Your name is tarnished in this world, and we want it to be lifted high. We want everyone to know how holy you are, how wonderful you are. And God's holiness means two things. It means that he is completely distinct from everything because everything else is created, and he alone is creator. And it also means that everything else and everyone else is impure, and he alone is pure perfectly. So God is holy. He is completely unlike us, and we want everyone to know that. We want everyone to know that. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. God's kingdom, this is a huge theme throughout Matthew's gospel, God's kingdom is his saving reign. So God is not an ordinary king who sits in a castle and rules over all of the peasants for his own enrichment, God invites people into his kingdom so that they might be saved. God's inviting us into his kingdom to see him as king, see him as Lord, that we might be saved. That's where salvation is. Coming into God's kingdom is kind of like if there was a tornado coming and we all got into the tornado shelter because that's the safe place. And you can only get into the kingdom, the safe place, the saved place by knowing the king, by knowing the savior. So again, when we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying for two things. We're praying that people would come into the tornado shelter. We're praying that people would come in and acknowledge God's saving reign, submit to him as king, find life in him as savior. And we're also praying that he would return to finish that work of salvation, to bring all of his people home, finally. He keeps going, your will be done. You know, God's will obviously includes a lot, but what's primarily in view here is the same theme that we've been talking about, that God would be glorified. Because God's glory, God does will a lot of things, but God's glory is always his ultimate end. God has a lot of goals. God's glory is always his ultimate goal. All of the other goals are driven by the one ultimate goal of his own glory. Think about what we've read earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. Why does God call us as his disciples to do good? For his own glory. Matthew 5.16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and... what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Why does God judge sinners for his own glory? In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul talks about the salvation of some and the condemnation of others. And he uses an example of Pharaoh in the Exodus story. And he says, I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. Why does God judge sinners for his own glory? Why did Christ die to save us? Galatians chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Why did Christ die to save us? For his own glory. Why does God save anyone? For his own glory. 2 Corinthians 4.15. For it is all for your sake 
So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. And why does the gospel need to spread to every corner of the globe for the glory of God? Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, him being the Son, being Christ, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue that means every language confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, God's glory is his ultimate goal. It's his top priority. Is it the top priority of your prayer life? Do you pray that God's greatness would be seen? And he ends this section on earth as it is in heaven. The point of heaven is not seeing your loved ones again. The point of heaven is seeing one who is so much greater, God. And another misconception about heaven is people often say that they died and went to heaven. And heaven is not so much a place that we will go ultimately. What happens in eternity is that heaven comes down here. God will dwell with them. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and a new Jerusalem is its capital, and we'll all live there cultivating the world for the glory of God like he designed it to be. And he'll be sitting on a throne at the middle of it all, shining brighter than the sun. That's what we have to look forward to. That heaven and earth become one and God's will is perfectly done. God's kingdom is universal and it's everywhere in that new heaven and in that new earth. And God's will is always fully done because there's no sin to stop it from happening. The curse is obliterated. So when we pray, hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we're praying is that history would be completed. We're praying that God would come back and save us all from the world of suffering and evil that we live in now. And we're praying that we would have a little taste of it right now. That people would come into the kingdom. That the gospel would spread. That people would be saved. We're praying, God, we know that's how it's going to be in the new heavens and on the new earth, and we pray that it would happen now. We pray that we would get a little taste of that heaven now. Throughout the New Testament, there's this comparison. Heaven as the place where God is, and earth where the place we are. And, And Jesus is instructing us to pray that they would become one, that we'd get a little piece of heaven here. We're praying that history would be completed. God's chief goal, his ultimate end, his top priority is his own glory. So does that mean that he's an egotistical maniac? That he wants everybody to give our lives away and talk to him all the time about how great he is? No, because God's glory is for our own good. So we saw just a moment ago that salvation is for God's glory. Why does God save sinners? So that he would be glorified. He saves sinners to the praise of his glorious grace. But also, 
Stick with me. The glorifying of God is how sinners are saved. The glorifying of God is how sinners are saved. Hear, hear these words from Romans chapter 10. Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's how people get saved. They call upon the name of the Lord. So Paul asks a question. Well, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Okay, well, that makes sense, right? You have to believe. You have to trust in God before you call out to help, call out for help. But, but then he asks another question. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And that, how are they to hear without someone preaching? So unless someone preaches, no one will believe. And unless they believe, they cannot call. And unless they call, they cannot be saved. So unless someone preaches, unless God's name is exalted, unless we share with our neighbors and friends and family, no one will be saved. That's God's plan. God's plan is that he would be glorified, that he would be lifted high, that people would see him and they would love him because he's wonderful. That's God's plan. God's glory leads to salvation of sinners. And the salvation of sinners leads to God's glory, which leads to more people being saved. It's this beautiful plan that God has that he would be lifted high and all the world would love him. That's God's plan. We pray for God to be glorified because this is the height of compassion. Is there anything more loving that we could do then pray that God would be glorified so that people can be set free from sin. Is there anything more loving than that? God is calling you to live for more than your own comfort or more than the betterment even of this world. Some of you have incredible jobs here in the city, and you do incredible work that is extremely important. And I don't want to diminish that or downplay that at all, but God is calling you to even more. God is calling you to live for something even greater than that. The hallowing of his name, the doing of his will, the coming of his kingdom. So do you long for people to know Christ? Is your prayer life shaped by God's glory? Are you burdened for the things that God is burdened for? Think about it this way. If God answered every single one of your prayers from the last 48 hours, would our city look different? Would the world look different? Or would just your life look different? What do we pray for? So how do we make a change in our own prayer life? What can we actually do practically? I want to tell you about an app that I use that I think can help you. It's the Unreached of the Day app. You can download it at PillarDC.com pray. That'll take you to their website where you can download it for Apple or Android or whatever you use. And what that app does is it gives you a different unreached people group to pray for every day. So today, if you download that app, it's going to ask you to pray for the lesbian of Georgia. The lesbian of Georgia is 
2,500 people, and not a single one of them have ever heard the name of Jesus. They've never heard it. Well, how are they to call on him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to be saved without calling? They've never heard that Christ died for their sins. They've never heard that Christ rose again. They've never heard that Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead. What are we going to do about this? We pray about it. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus' disciples just came back from, this, from seeing all the lostness in the world. And Jesus looks out on a crowd of people. None of them know him. And he said, the, the harvest is abundant. There's lots of sinners out there that need saving. So what's Jesus' battle plan? Jesus' battle plan, Luke 10 two, Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. God's plan to accomplish the Great Commission, to see people like the Lesgian of Georgia saved, is that we would pray, that you would pray. You are God's plan A for the salvation of every tribe, tongue, and nation, for people like the Lesgians. So download that app. You can get a notification every day. And here's the temptation you're going to have. You're going to have the, the temptation to get that notification and be like, oh, man, I'm so holy getting a notification about prayer. And then you don't actually pray. Mm, you know what that sounds like? Keeping up words. So don't do that. Actually get the notification. You can pick a convenient time for you. That's why we read earlier in Philippians chapter 2 that every tongue, every language must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's not happening among the lesbian in Georgia. What are we going to do about that? We're going to pray about it. We're going to pray about it. And this is not to say, friends, that God does not care about you or your needs, that he's so focused on his own glory that he kind of forgets about all the little peons down here. No, God cares immensely about you, which is why, number three, we pray for God's goodness to be shown physically and spiritually. We have no hope of survival unless God is kind to us, unless God is kind to us, unless he helps us with every need, unless he sustains us every second, we are hopeless. He is more essential than oxygen. And friends, we don't just need this God. You're invited to have him. In Isaiah 55, the prophet Isaiah says, come and buy endless water, you who have no money. You who have no money, come and buy it. Because it's free. God is giving life to you for free. And why? We said it at the beginning. Because his son purchased it with his own blood. So in our sin, we are separated from God. We cannot be sustained by this God. We cannot be held up by this God. This God will not keep us alive because in our sin, we deserve to be completely obliterated by this God. We must fall before our faces before this holy God because we're an unholy people. But God loves us so much that in his grace, he sent his son. He knows that we need him, so he would not allow us to be estranged from him. So he sent his son to teach us what he is like. And not just to teach us and be an example and to tell us how to be a disciple, but to actually make a way for us to know God again, to be brought back to that which we truly need, which is God himself. 
That's what Jesus died for. He died on the cross to pay for your sins so that you can know this God, the God who you need more than anything else. In the fourth century, there was a church leader named Augustine, one of the greatest theologians in the history of ever. And he said, he said in his, his most famous book, is called The Confessions, and he said at the very beginning of it, we were made for you, God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. You were made to know this God, and Christ died and rose again so that you can know him so that you can know the only one who is able to save you. Like Christ coming is like bringing an important medication to a village in Africa that's being wiped out by an illness. They need healing. And so people are going to come and bring that medication to them so that they can be healed. You need God, and so Christ came and gave himself and rose again so that you can have God. That's why Christ came. And so how do we pray in light of that news? Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. In Israel, before Israel arrived in the promised land, they were wandering around in the desert, and God provided for them every day by giving them manna bread that came from heaven and grew right out of the ground and they could collect it every day. And God told them, you only need to collect enough for today because I'm going to provide for you tomorrow. You don't need to store it up. You don't need to trust in your storehouses. You need to trust in me. I'm going to give it to you again tomorrow. And so that's what God's inviting us to pray for. Not praying, man, God, I pray that you would help me be like really established and comfortable and, and healthy. He's, he's inviting us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. To, he's inviting us to recognize that we're completely dependent on him. And in a culture that values and prioritizes self-sufficiency and independence and strength, God calls us to fall back completely dependent on him because he's the only one we need. If he doesn't come through, we're toast. That's the spirit of the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. God, if you don't come through, I'm toast. It's over. We're not self-sufficient. He goes on, verse 12, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Friends, our sin is a debt that we owe to God. This was a common image for sin in Jesus' own day. And Jesus says that we're encouraged to bring that debt to God and ask that it would be forgiven. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a story about a servant who owed this great debt to a master, like 10,000 bajillion dollars. And the servant goes and he says, Master, I'd like, forgive me, I'm late. I'll do my best. Help me. And the master says, it's fine, it's forgiven, it's good, it's over, it's done. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, Jesus says. That servant in Matthew 18, as soon as his great hundred bajillion dollar debt was paid, he went and found somebody else who owed him $25. And I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. He found somebody else that owed him $25 and said, like, dude, if you don't pay me back right now, I'm going to kill you. And he had that guy thrown into prison. And the master is like, what? Like, do you even understand what just happened? 
I forgave you 100 bajillion dollars, and you like completely took a guy to town over 25? Like, what's the matter with you? Don't you realize how much grace I just showed you? You don't understand that grace at all. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And then he unpacks it in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This isn't salvation by works. Like if you're forgiving enough, then God will forgive you. But God is calling us to obey him from our whole hearts. That's the theme over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, right? And when we read this, especially through the lens of Matthew 18 and that parable about an unforgiving servant, we see that, that, we see that clearly. We see that a heart bent on revenge-seeking does not understand the grace of God, which has forgiven us so abundantly and so freely. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. We've rebelled against God. Only he can save us. Only he can save us. And he can save us because of Christ. It's great news. And he ends in verse 13, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We need a lot of protection in this world. We're surrounded by temptation. We're surrounded by wickedness that is calling us to turn away from God. Empty promises are, are all around our city calling us, don't follow God, follow XYZ. That's what's going to make you happy. God's not going to make you happy. That's going to make you happy. Sin's going to make you happy. And it's a lie, friends. But we need to be protected from that temptation. We need God to not lead us into it, but to lead us away from it, to help us to stay pure, to help us to stay devoted to him, to help us to run after the only thing that can really give us life. Because we were made for you, God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Only God can do that. And by God's grace, he does. And then he closes, deliver us from evil. There is an evil one in this world. And he wants nothing more than for you to not believe he exists. Because that lets him be a little more tricky. There's an evil one. Satan, the adversary, the devil, the thief. Whatever you want to call him, Lucifer. In John 10, 10, Jesus described him, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. There is an evil one, friends, that wants to steal you from God, who wants to kill you, who wants to destroy you forever. He is real. He is active. He is strong. He's prowling around like a roaring lion. And our prayer, deliver us from evil. God, rescue us. We need you more than oxygen. If you don't protect us, we're, we're toast. It's over. This guy's going to devour us. John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's bad news, but he continues, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We need to depend on God, friends. I'm going to ask the music team to come back up now, and I just want to be very clear about something. We depend on God because his grace is sure. Christianity is not about cleaning yourself up. It's about appealing to the God who loves us by his grace. 
We are not saved. We are not good with God because we've earned our way in. You can't impress him, and that's bad news, but you don't have to impress him, and that is very good news. So entrust yourself today to God's grace. For some of you, that means you're going to come to him for the first time today and find life in his name and say, I've been living for myself. I want to live for him. I've been trusting him for myself. I want to trust in him. If that's the case, go to the back of the room. There's several people back there who would love to talk to you about that, about what it means to trust in Christ. During our last song, you can do that. And if you are a Christian, don't get self-reliant. Don't think that God hears you because you've been good this week. He hears you by his grace. We pray because God's grace is sure. We pray for God's greatness to be seen. We pray for God's goodness to be shown. So let's pray together as we close our time. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Oh God, we pray that your name would be lifted high. We pray that the world would see how wonderful you are. We pray that Capitol Hill would see how wonderful you are. That they would see how, how you are greater and better than anything in this world. Hallowed be your name, God. Your kingdom come. God, would you save people here in this city? Would you see people move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? Your kingdom come, God. Please make it happen. God, your kingdom come to the lesbian of Georgia. 2,500 people who've never heard your name before. You've never received the praise that you're worthy of there, God. Extend your kingdom there. Send workers into the harvest. Do it, God, for the glory of your name. Your kingdom come. Make it come here in D.C. Make it come in Georgia. Make it come everywhere on the planet. Make it come in San Antonio. Your kingdom come. As sinners come and repent and find life in your name, your kingdom come, God. Your will be done. God, would you be glorified by our lives? I pray that you would continue to purify our church and grow us so that you would be glorified by our lives as we proclaim your word to our neighbors that don't know you, to our friends and family and coworkers that don't know you. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh God, we know that you're coming back and that's our hope. God, I pray that you would give, that a, give us a taste of that now by saving people that don't know you. God, I pray for my neighbor who doesn't know you. I pray that he would find life in your name. I pray that your will would be done in his life, that heaven would come down and save him. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. God, humble us. Help us to depend on you. God, we need you. We need you. I pray that you would provide for me, God. I pray that you would give me wisdom. That you would help me to not trust in myself, but trust in you. I pray that no person here would be hungry tomorrow, but that you would provide for us, God. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Oh God, I've sinned even today. I've been impatient and quick-tempered about people that have inconvenienced me, about traffic, about silly things. God, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. God, please help me to forgive others. Help me to forgive others. Lead us not into temptation. God, keep me safe. 
I'm tempted to continue in anger and impatience, and I pray that you would deliver me from that, that you would lead me not into that, but lead me away from that. Help me to be patient and loving and kind, not angry and impatient and selfish, and deliver us from evil. Oh God, I pray that you would keep me and preserve me to the end. I pray that you would preserve people in this room, people that I know, people that I've talked to today, God. I pray that you would preserve them. For your name we pray. Amen.